Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to episode 10 of This Is Our Effing Podcast with your co hosts, Sean McAdam and Steve Lyons. It has once again been an eventful week uh, around the 2021 Red Sox to remain on the West Coast, finishing up a road trip out there, uh, one that has gone pretty well so far, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we have talked to you about lining some guests up. We will continue to endeavor to do that. Hope to have one for next week. But in the meantime, thanks for tuning in. Please let your friends know about the podcast. Recommend it if you'd be so kind. Rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. And we would be most appreciative. Steve, good afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> uh, and, and so are the Red Sox, uh, as we uh, record this. Uh, still in first place by a healthy margin in the American League East. Doing well on their West Coast trip. Taking two out of three in Oakland over the weekend and then moving south to do battle with Shohei Otani and the Angels. Um, as we come up to the break, Steve, it's uh, I guess it's a good time to look back on the first half of the season that regardless of what happens there in the last, last couple of days leading up to the break, and the Red Sox will have one more home series uh, before taking the break, I, I think it's um, a, a safe assumption that we can say that the first half was both an excellent one and very much unexpected when you go back to what the expectations were at the end of March. Yeah, I think it's hard not to be excited about this team right now. Uh, they've done over and above what anyone expected. They've been more durable than anyone expected. Uh, you know, they have five guys on the all-star team headed into the break. I mean, that certainly shows you that they've had great individual performances, some from people you wouldn't even expect. Uh, you know, and I think once again, you have to point towards Heim Bloom and the, the job that he's been able to do to put a team together after one of the worst teams in the history of the baseball uh, played in a Red Sox uniform last season. So, yeah, as each passing week goes by, you know, you and I talked when this first podcast started that there was nobody in Boston really talking about the Red Sox. The radio shows left them alone. Uh, they were left for dead after a terrible 2020 season. Nobody really cared about what was going on. No one was sure if they'd ever be able to get back into Fenway to watch a game. And now you, you got to say that they, they have to be, uh, you know, the hottest sports team going uh, in this city, certainly. And, uh, you know, the only one going for the most part. But people are talking about the Red Sox again, and they deserve to be talked about. Yeah, I think you're right. I think they have uh, gotten people's attention. I, I think people may have been a little skeptical through the first couple of months. Well, it's early. Well, they haven't played any good teams. Uh, so there was a, a, a show me element uh, to, <laughs> to the exactly like what I was saying. Yeah, I, I mean, people wanted to, to see if this is for real. And while there's still a lot of baseball to go, uh, we, we've got better than two and a half months uh, left in the season when we come out of the all-star break, I, I think we are now in the clear and can say that this Red Sox team is not a fluke and that barring something completely uh, unexpected, that they're going to be very much in contention uh, for a playoff spot when, when we get into uh, September, which will make 
trade deadline and, uh, and a bunch of other things in the second half, all that more interesting, probably sped up the timetable behind Bloom, who, um, if you were to administer a little truth serum to him back on April 1st, probably would have said, give me a winning season and I'll be happy. And now uh, he's going to get much more than that, which will make it incumbent upon him to add to this roster. But we'll, we'll get to that on next week's episode as we look ahead to the second half and, and uh, what we might expect at the deadline from the Red Sox. But as I said, I thought we'd look back a little bit. If you were giving a grade to the 2021 Red Sox, what would that be right now? I don't think you could give them anything but an A. I mean, it's, as we said, they've done everything they can do. They've, they've done it better than anyone expect them to do. And sometimes expectations are funny, right? You know, the guy goes out there and he doesn't have as good a year as you expected him to do. And you, you say he had a bad season. Maybe that's just who the guy was. Um, this Red Sox team universally was thought of as a middle of the road team uh, for this season. So in virtually every aspect of the game, they've overachieved or at least, you know, played above the expectation that people thought of them. So when you go halfway through a season and, and, and you're throwing up the kind of numbers and doing the kind of things that they're doing, I can't imagine you couldn't give them anything more than an A. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think in a, even if you're being a difficult grader and grading on a curve, uh, I, I think A minus is the absolute lowest you'd be willing to go given what people thought they were going to get and what they have gotten through the first, you know, 85 uh, or, or, or so games as we approach the all-star break. Um, most pleasant surprise on the team. Um, I, I think you go in a number of different areas, but my vote's going to go to Hunter Renfro. How about you? Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking too, because, you know, if you're talking surprise, absolutely. This is a, you know, kind of an under the radar signing. We saw the numbers he put up a couple of seasons ago. And I think Bloom thought, Hey, he's done it before. Maybe he can do it again. Um, you, you know, I don't feel like he felt there was a ton of pressure on him coming into the lineup that he was going to be able to hit in uh, with a, a bunch of other established stars. When you look at JD and endeavors and bogey and those kind of guys, you can hide in a lineup like that and, and have an impact and not have to worry about uh, too many other things. And so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, to me, he's the number one. I mean, you could certainly look at a guy like Devers, but you're, you're starting to absolutely expect numbers like he's throwing up out of him. And I can remember back when we were talking about Mookie and Bogey, you know, four seasons ago, five seasons ago, I said, what they're doing is unbelievable but you become a superstar when you do it year in and year out. And they continue to do that. You know, any guy can jump off the bridge and have a great year and then, you know, settle back to who he normally is. Uh, that happens to a lot of players, but when you get better and then you keep throwing those numbers up uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that Devers is doing now. So I think you start expecting that out of him. Yeah, I, I agree. The left side of the infield has clearly become uh sort of both the face of the franchise and the foundation of the franchise going forward. You have uh, Bogart potentially under control for another, you know, handful of seasons. You've got uh, Devers under control at least through 2023 before he can reach free agency. So that's clearly the building block and you now expect a certain level of performance, but uh, Renfro surprised uh, a lot of people, I think on a couple of fronts, 
Number one, his ability to hit right-handed pitching. The, the belief was that this was a platoon guy who you had to limit his exposure to right-handed pitching and mostly capitalize on matchups with lefties who he has always hit well against. And then his defensive play. I, you know, he had a reputation for uh, having a strong outfield arm, but his ability to play right field in Fenway, which, as you know, is no day in the park given the amount of ground you have to cover, the sunfield you get on the rare day games, uh, some of the strange angles down in the corner. I mean, he's made it look easy. And uh, to, to jump off that point, I, I guess if we're talking about things we didn't see coming, uh, we, we could move on and talk about the defense of the Red Sox outfield as a whole. 28 assists, easily the most in baseball, uh, but not just you know, good throwing arms, which you're getting out of all three regulars, if you include Verdugo and Kike Hernandez, along with, um, uh, along with Renfro, but just the amount of uh, uh, ground they cover, no matter what defensive metric you use, whether it's ultimate zone rating or uh, run saved above average, they are elite. Um, and, and, you know, people thought, well, that Benintendi, Bradley Betts outfield that everyone swooned over with with the you know reasonably uh, a reasonable reaction given how talented and young they were but all three of those guys are gone and yet almost immediately at least defensively the Red Sox have replaced it with uh, an outfield outfield defense that may even be better than those or at least as good. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far considering who you were talking about with Yeah, Betts. that's true. I I I, uh, I I got a little too hyperbolic there. Remember? But I like it. I like it. You know, you're excited about him and you should be. I mean, the, the outfield assists. You know, here's a couple of things that that I believe about uh the way I'll start with the way Fenway Park plays. Fenway lends itself to more outfield assists because runners tend to take more chances there. And they learn sometimes very slowly that they shouldn't because you can get thrown out much more easily, I think, in Fenway Park than you can anywhere else because of the dimensions of the field. Now, yeah, I, I, would, I would say that about left field, Steve, you know, because you get the ball coming off the wall and, and, and that's a quick throw back into one of the bases or even home. But I, I would say that both center and right uh, play pretty big uh, and, and, and don't have that that same issue with being, uh, you know, with, without field assess. I, I think those are more uh, a, a genuine reflection of the play in those two positions rather than, uh, well, it's Fenway. Well, yeah. I mean, I'll give you that, but look at it from this point of view. When you look at a guy like Renfro and what he's doing in right field, because he has a power arm, that certainly helps him. But because of the expanse of right field, when you're a base runner, you tend to think that you have more room to run. It's like, if I hit a ball just into the gap there in right center field, I'm going for two, but because of the job he's doing out there and covering the ground, uh, you know, right field lends itself to taking more chances, but you got a guy out there that's cutting you down almost every time you do it. And so that's why I feel like, you know, left field, everyone has said that left field in Fenway is so hard to play. I disagree. I think right field is harder to play. I think it's Much far harder. harder to play. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always said, you know, anything in left field, if it's hit over your head, it's either going out or coming back to you. You know, you, you've got a 37-foot uh, high wall that, that, that's going to spit the ball back to you. 
we've seen some fairly mediocre outfielders, um, you know, figure out a way to play that wall and left with enough time. Uh, I, it, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Center and right are, are much more challenging. And, and that makes the play of both Hernandez, who, let's face it, was not a full-time outfielder when he got here, a guy that is, is looked upon as both a second baseman and a super utility guy who could play the outfield. He's been superb. And, and so is Renfro. And, and that outfield defense, uh, it seems to me, is definitely one, uh, another one of those um, unexpected contributions that I don't think anybody saw. Yeah, and I think the, the outfield assist numbers prove that out because it's kind of my philosophy that if you're, if, you're an, if you're a known excellent outfielder, you rarely get assists because no one's going to take a chance right. on Yeah, you. go back and look at Dwight Evans. You know, I don't, I don't think he ever had uh, – he didn't have a lot of years with double figures and assists because people respected that arm and didn't test it. Right, maybe early in his career when he right. started running people down and after they said, well, wait a minute, you're not running on this guy. And then, you know, that, that shows the respect. And I think that a lot of teams came in and looked at the Red Sox and they're like, Benintendi's gone. Bradley's gone. Mookie's gone. Let's go boys. Let's take on these guys. What are they? Who are they? What are they? What, what can they do? And you look up and they've got 28 outfield assists before the all-star break. Come on. Um, somewhat surprisingly, I guess, none of those outfielders are going to be in Denver next week for the annual all-star game. Although, uh, the offensive numbers are good for both Renfro and Verdugo, less so um, for Kike Hernandez until recently. He's been on uh, a bit of a roll here with four home runs in the last nine games and finally seemingly looking a little more comfortable in that leadoff spot. But nonetheless, the Red Sox have five all-stars on the American League all-star team. That is more than any other team in either league. They have more representatives than any team in Major League Baseball. Um, a couple of starters voted in. We've already talked about Bogart's endeavors. I don't think you could argue uh, their worthiness, given the way they played in the first half. But then uh, on Sunday, three extras got added. Matt Barnes uh, as the uh, closer, uh, Nathan Avaldi as a, a starting pitcher, obviously, and then J.D. Martinez, the D.H. Uh, again, I think all five of those uh, are not up for debate. Hard to argue that any of those five don't belong on that team. Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly, you, you just kind of figure J.D.'s a shoe in every year, except for, with the exception of 2020, and we all know what happened there, and he just had a bad season. It's, it just kind of, it should show people how difficult this game is to be Cons uh, consistent at and that was just a strange season for everybody but it seemed to affect him even more than the average and you know the well-known documentation about you know not being able to watch video and that kind of thing kind of stuck in his head a little bit but certainly he's back on the all-star team Barnes was you know to me kind of a no-brainer too it, you know obviously you have to wait for the pitchers uh, to get in there and then of course Evaldi uh, he may maybe didn't take the news so great he didn't have his best start when I think he found out before that started anyway. Um, yeah, he had, um, he had a bit of a rough go in the first inning uh, against the Angels on Tuesday night, gave up three runs, and then later gave up two more in his last inning of work. But um, you know, after the first inning, I thought threw the ball much better. Uh, a couple of soft contact and some bad luck later on, adding two runs on, and they didn't do much against 
uh, Otani. But, but back to the picture at large here, um, you know, it, 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 I, I think too that uh, while it's only an exhibition game, we know that it's it, in the end, you know, in a couple of weeks, people won't remember much about the All Star game. But I think it's probably good for the franchise. Uh, again, when we talk about popularity and connecting with fans, um, you know, maybe a year ago there was this feeling, especially after the Mookie Betts trade, that that this Bloom administration was going to be bloodless, that they would not prioritize acquiring or keeping star players, that it was all about, you know, getting 26 guys on the roster to mesh and you'd be platooning at half the spots and looking to save money where you can. The fact that the Red Sox have the most number of all-stars of the 30 major league teams uh, suggests that there is some star quality to this team. Uh, and, you know, from a public appeal and recognition standpoint, I think that's important to connect with the fan base. Yeah, and certainly on a national scale, you know, to see a bunch of Red Sox uniforms running around in Denver, you know, uh, that looks good no matter what ball club you are. And it kind of reestablishes not necessarily a dominance, but a, a presence of an organization when you see that many guys represented in an all-star game. And, you know, I, you alluded to the Mookie Betts trade and, you know, I just, I really don't have a problem with it, you know, for the amount of money that they tried to offer him and for the amount of money that he said he wanted and for the amount of money that he ended up getting, I think that would have been an albatross type of a deal. We love Mookie Betts. He's a tremendous player but he's also kind of an undersized player that they're going to be paying 30 million, $33 million a year for, for seven years after he's 34 years old. So you tell me if, you know, they better win three championships out there. They got one with him. And a lot of people will say that 2020 championship, mm, you know, wasn't the best one to win. You know, it's nice to have it, but was it really a baseball season? You know, there's, there's a lot of skepticism around that. So they, they need to win more championships while they're paying him. What did we figure it out? I think uh, uh, TC and I figured that out one day. Uh, they're paying him $83,000 a day every day for the next 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> that deal is going to turn around and bite you. And had the Red, yeah. Sox, Red Sox fans would have been happy for a while. But then, you know, four years from now, they might have been saying, what the heck were we thinking? Because now we have no flexibility to do anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. Those deals tend to backfire on teams over the long haul. Um, you know, you can count on one hand the number of mega deals that teams would probably eagerly sign again. Ironically, I think one of them would be the Manny Ramirez original contract, the eight years, $160 million, that for all the headaches Manny provided toward the end was probably a good investment in terms of what it uh, it, it brought to the Red Sox, uh, including two uh, world championships. And uh, the other that I would hold up as one that has stood the test of time is the current Max Scherzer deal, uh, which really may have been undervalued in terms of what the Nationals got back for Scherzer. Now, admittedly, they only got one title out of that. Um, it's unlikely they're going to get another this year. They're fighting to be over 500 in Washington. Uh, and it's going to be tough to make the playoffs, never mind make a World Series run. But you certainly can't argue with what they've got uh, over the stretch of that. And, um, it, you know, it, it is a reminder that most of those deals do not age well, particularly toward the back. Uh, 
Um, and you could read way back. You know, you, you could point to the Washington Nationals last year too, weren't playing very well right about this time too, before they really turned things around. Um, but uh, two years ago when they won, right? Yeah, yes, 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 two years ago. Um, you know, I'd, I'd reach way back too. And, and I, I know people have their opinions about a guy like Barry Bonds, but Barry Bonds was a guy who used to sign big long term deals and then keep playing better and better after he did. Yep. And I point right back in our own backyard. And I'd say that the deal that the Red Sox signed with, with Bogarts, even though I know he has an out coming and, you know, can get out of his deal here at some point in time or renegotiate and get bigger money. Bogarts has proven to be a better and better player, even after he signed the deal. Right. And, and the beauty of that deal from the Red Sox standpoint is that, in the big picture, it is so modest. I would not even classify it in one of the in that category. You know, we were talking about Mookie being north of three hundred million. Uh, the Scherzer deal was around two hundred million. I mean, the Mookie deal is one hundred and twenty million dollars. That that you know, those kind of commitments uh, almost don't belong in, in that super deal category because it's relatively affordable, all things considered. Which which you know, speaks to how favorable the deal has been for the Red Sox. Uh, of course, we're going to have to see where that goes at the end of 2022 with that opt-out that, that you referenced. Um, one more topic before we wrap up here, Steve, and that is the upcoming uh, amateur draft, which begins on Sunday night. Ordinarily, uh, this gets held in the first 10 days or so of June, but in order to capitalize on some publicity and to stir up some interest this year, uh, Major League Baseball has moved it to coincide with the All-Star break. It will in fact take place out in Denver where the All-Star game is being played. Uh, and otherwise we might not pay, be paying a whole lot of attention to this. Uh, traditionally the Red Sox uh, get a late first round pick somewhere in the low to high 20s, depending on what they've done before. Uh, but because that 2020 season that we've referenced a few times today was so bad, the Red Sox are going to pick fourth, which is the highest selection they've had since I think the second year of the draft, going back uh, to, to 1966. So that has put more spotlight on this for the Red Sox. Um, they, uh, they clearly don't relish having finished so poorly to warrant the fourth pick. They hope they're not back anywhere near inside the top 10 pick for a long time because that suggests a, a poor season, and last year's certainly qualifies as that. But it is a rare opportunity for the Red Sox to really get their pick of one of the handful of best players in the country. And um, it, it's also a strange year for the draft, and I, I guess that makes sense because it's been such a strange year and a half. The pandemic scouting has been made more difficult. Uh, seasons have been shortened, canceled. Um, some of the, the scouting has to be done by video rather than in person. So you, you add all those things up and no one has any idea as we record this, Steve, who the number one pick is going to be Sunday. Often uh, there's a deal done. Everyone knows who the number one pick is going to be. Uh, you talk to most experts and they say it could be any one of five or six players who goes first. Um, the Red Sox have been out of late connected to uh, two players in that draft. One is Jack Leiter. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it should. He is the son of former 
uh, Major League pitcher Al Leiter, who pitched for the Mets, the Yankees, and uh, Blue Jays, and other teams along the way, now a broadcaster with Yes on the uh, Yankees network. Uh, he, uh is uh, a right-handed pitcher. His father, of course, was left-handed. Uh, Leiter from Vanderbilt. And the other is another college player, a catcher, Henry Davis from the University of Louisville. Those are the two guys most often connected with the Red Sox. But as we said, uh, this thing's so up in the air, they could go off the board. They could take one of the high school shortstops that's being talked about early. They could get that frontline pitcher and lighter. They could get their catcher for the next decade in Davis. Uh, they could go seemingly in, in a half dozen different uh, directions here just days before the draft. Yeah, and you'll have to see what the philosophy is of the organization. A guy like Hein Bloom, who's kind of built his reputation on being able to draft well and acquire talent uh, sort of under the radar and certainly for a lot less money. This might, you know, handcuff his talents a little bit because you have to go towards, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, a top five pick. Uh, it's not like you're drafting 22nd where it's like, hey, you know, maybe we scout a little more heavily or we can take a chance on this guy. Uh, you know, who was the last draft? It was a very unexpected first round pick by the Red Sox so much. So I can't remember the guy's name, you know? <laughs> so I, he, he can't really be in that position this year. He's going to have to go for one of the top players in the country. And it'll be interesting to see, do they draft by position for future needs or do they draft the best athlete at the time? And, you know, certain different teams have different philosophies about that. Yeah, I think it's going to be instructive to see which way they go. Do they simply stick with the, we're going to take the best player available, the best value on the board? Because let's face it, the, the, the baseball draft, even though it's become more popular in the last few years, televised by the MLB Network and all of that, um, it is still very, you know, probably the biggest crapshoot, uh, certainly put up against the NBA draft and the NFL draft. And those two sports, you see players... Uh, you know, in college basketball, you see them in the tournament. Uh, if they come from a big conference, you see them all the time on ESPN. In football, you see them play bowl games. You see them play uh, big games on the weekend in the fall. I think it's safe to say that uh, unless you are a super hardball junkie, you have not watched uh, Jack Leiter pitch for Vanderbilt or Henry Davis catch for the University of Louisville uh, you know, you could watch the College World Series and get a little look at them. But these guys are are largely unknown to the general fan base, which I guess might make it a little easier. It's not like there's great fan pressure to, oh, they got to take the quarterback or, uh, you know, they need the point guard in, in the NBA draft. Um, most, the vast majority of fans do not know these guys. They're not familiar with them. They're, they're rather anonymous. But I think you're right. It's going to be interesting to see which way do they go. My thought is, if you're not expecting to be inside the top 10 for a long time, that uh, given the problems the Red Sox have had as an organization, uh, developing young starting pitching, we know you have to go back now to Clay Buckle more than a decade, find someone that they have drafted and developed and got to the big leagues to be a contributor and a significant starting pitcher. My thought is when you are this high up in the draft and have access to the best, this is the time you go for the potential frontline, front of the rotation starter. You get Jack Leiter if he's still there at four. Yeah. And then, you know, someone throws a wrench into your plans and they, 
draft Jack Leiter number three, you know, and there's, there's always a, you have to be able to evolve and figure out what your next move is going to be. But I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, what you're looking at Towner Hauk now might be the next guy that could put an impact as, as far as the starting rotation goes as a guy who came up through the organization. So uh, it's been too long since Buckholz and they've got to uh, develop a reputation as a team who can and will develop talent within the organization and have homegrown players be successful. Well, we'll certainly have a lot to recap uh, when we do our next episode next week. The draft will be complete. The mystery will be over. We can analyze that a little bit, and then we will use next week's episode to look ahead to the second half of the season. And uh, dare I say, the trade deadline is not far off in the distance by the time we get to next week, just two and a half weeks away. So we'll start talking about what the needs are, but that'll wrap up episode 10 of This Is Our Effing Podcast with your co-hosts, John McAdam and Steve Lines. We've covered a lot of ground here today. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Please tell your friends. Please rate and review. Please join us next week. And Steve, uh, we'll talk to you next week. Enjoy the break. All right. You too. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.